wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Welcome to Bleeding Daylight. Please connect with us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Find the links at bleedingdaylight.net. Please help others discover Bleeding Daylight by sharing episodes. That way you'll ensure that others hear about light in the midst of darkness. Today's guest was sentenced to a life behind bars with no hope of parole. Hear how he found freedom inside the walls of a prison. At just 17 years of age, Jean McGuire was branded as a murderer and sent to prison with little hope of release. In his book Unshackled, he not only recounts the incident that changed his life as a teenager, he also writes about another life-changing moment many years later. I'm very pleased that Jean is my guest today on Bleeding Daylight. Thank you so much for your time. Rodney, I am so excited to be on your uh, podcast uh, to talk to your audience I'm looking forward to uh, being a blessing to you and to your audience. I want to go back even before the crime that took your freedom from you. Tell me what life was like for you as a, as a younger teen. I lived in New Jersey, moved to Pennsylvania, moved on a dairy farm, and I found sports as some, something of my favorite, you know, and I was good at it. I uh, participated in track and field and also you know, cross country, and I also participated in in football. Was there ever hope in those early days that sport might be something that might take you somewhere? I believe uh, from what I heard afterward that I had a lot of potential, but one of the things that was stifling and hampering and destroying my potential slowly was alcohol. I grew up in a family that uh, drank a lot. I was never beaten. I was never abused. I wasn't neglected. I was fed. My clothes were clean. My, my mother was a functioning alcoholic. Would She could almost drink almost you know three, six packs a day. But obviously, it was slowly destroying over the years. So good times we drank, bad times we drank. Church wasn't really in the picture. After parents divorced, we went to a Catholic church and Catholic school, and then we separated from that. And the talk of God, talk of the Lord, talk about Jesus— was just absent. It just wasn't something or someone we talked about or prayer or the Bible reading. Were there other relationships for your mom after the divorce? My mom did remarry a Christian man. He was a farmer and he farmed where we lived and he was a good guy, man. He loved my mom. And one of the things later I I remember as a young mid-teenager was I'd always see him in the morning reading his Bible by the side of bed. And I thought, wow. And once in a while, I'd walk by and pick up the Bible and look at it. And it's like, what is he reading? You know, it's so confusing. But uh, I always hear him say, trust the Lord. I always heard him say to my mom, uh, Mary, trust the Lord, trust the Lord, he'll provide. And they were like the words that just rang out in my life. So back in those days, life certainly wasn't ideal for you. But what led you to the crime for which you were imprisoned? I had a cousin named Bobby. He lived in New Jersey. He came to visit one weekend, and he was married. He had a two-year-old daughter, and he came to visit by himself. And that weekend, everybody was drinking, playing cards. Parents went to bed, and about 11.30 or so, he says, hey, is there some place around here I can go shoot pool? I want to shoot pool to my older stepbrother, who was 21. He had a car, and I said, man, I want to go. My parents quickly shut that down. They said, no, you're too young. You can't go. 
said, come on, Bobby, uh, talk, you know, sweet talk my mom. And uh, so we did. And out the door we went in about 20 minutes at the bar. My cousin turns to us and says, hey, I'm going to rob this place. I knew what he was going to do in a sense. It was shocking. But the idea was, well, if you're going to do it, you do it yourself. We're, we're not, I'm not going to do it. That's not something I would have done. Not something I would have thought about. So we decided to leave in my stepbrother's car, parked down the street about, you know, 40 yards or so. And my cousin would come back into the bar, rob it, and return with money. So as he left, he left the car, he started walking. I looked at him, and he was staggering all over the place. And, you know, we were all drinking. And, and so I got out the car. I followed him up to the parking lot. I stopped. And it's like a small little lake tavern, kind of a dirtish type road, small paved road. And he went in, and he didn't come out right away. And about a couple minutes later, my stepbrother joined us. And as he joined us, we waited and we said, let's go see what Bobby's doing. And when we got near the bar, we heard some banging and glass breaking. And so we opened up the door and Bobby was like going crazy. He was behind a bar and a pizza counter and he had stabbed the owner, Miss Nagy, to death. We yelled to him to stop. I yelled, Bobby, stop, you know, stop, man. And it was too late, you know, obviously. And, and then he called us in and said, help me find some money. We uh, went in for a minute and my cousin found some money. So you're suddenly part of a crime you had no intention of committing. What happened next? We took off. Obviously, my stepbrother had left in his car moments after he, he saw what he did. He, and I always thought, man, why didn't I run too, you know? Uh, but it was my favorite cousin and I just felt like he was the guy, you know, growing up. He he was our favorite cousin, everybody's favorite cousin, and so charming and helpful. And he was 24 years old. So we took off and I followed him to New York City and we walked the streets basically up in Spanish Harlem and he looked for drugs. He shot heroin. And I just feeling more and more that we had no plan, nothing going on. I knew I was in trouble. It didn't sink in, you know, the reality of a person murdered. I realized that person was dead. So parents were on TV, radio, and they, they wanted me to come back. My cousin told me, he said, you can run with me or you can return. They, they want me. They don't want you. You followed me. So I turned myself in. I was arrested and charged once I gave a statement. And then the rude awakening was police said, stand up. You're under arrest for murder. So I was booked in and taken to a juvenile center. And where a couple of days later, I received a public defender the next three months talking to him. And he convinced me that I should plead guilty to murder and I could be out in 10 years. In my mind, I'm thinking 10 years. I, I can't even imagine what being 20, 21, you know, uh, to be 27 because uh, I was 17. I just turned 17. So I did by his counsel and, and without really didn't have any outside advice or counsel other than the attorney. So I did. And then six months later, sentencing day, I uh, stood before the judge a day before my 18th birthday uh, the crime happened in June of 77. I pled guilty somewhere in late August, September. And then in March 8th, 1978, I pled guilty thinking I'd get 10 years and a judge sentenced me to life without the possibility of parole for my natural life. And I thought, wow, it's, I'm going to do 10 years. And, you know, the words and what the attorney told me. So the rude awakening was when I got to the state prison, to start my adult time, I learned real quickly that life in Pennsylvania, 
meant life without parole. You'll die better, you'll, a better chance of getting out through a box or by ashes than, than mm-hmm. by parole because there's no parole eligibility. And it was a rude awakening. It was like, man, my attorney, they said, young buck, these guys, you know, they had already had 15, 20 years. And they said, young buck, your attorney lied to you. So I got on the phone real quick and and I wanted to go back to court and appeal my case. And, and he gave me every reason why not to. And it sounded right. He told me I can get more time. And, and I just hung up the phone and went back to my cell. And I still remember that walk from my counselor's office to my cell and just feeling defeated. And, okay, I'll just do my time. Your prospects at this stage are, are really not good. You've been found guilty of a crime that you didn't commit, but admittedly you were there at the time, and that carries some weight with it. But you're now finding yourself in jail, and there's no opportunity to get out. Was there anything that you could do? Uh, Rodney, there's one avenue for a life sentence inmate in Pennsylvania for possible release. And, and it's, it's not a legal matter. It's a plea of mercy with the governor, the board of pardons. And you state your crime uh, briefly. What have you done in prison? Where are you going? Job skills and all the psychological stuff you go through, the battery of tests. And you ask for a plea of mercy, asking the governor if he would reduce your sentence from life in prison to life on parole. And it was a rare event. Uh, few had received it. You had to have a stellar record. You had to have something accomplished, helping people, you know, over the years. And it took, you know, 15 years, 12, 15 years. So that was my mindset. Okay, I'm going to shoot for that. So along the way, my first six years, I uh, did well, school, GD, some college, got involved in programs, uh, law buck literacy, helping guys to read, and I just kind of got involved as much as I could. Uh, went through my fights, obviously. You don't go through prison system without uh, experiencing some kind of violence and, and establishing yourself. People are always, you know, testing you and threatening you. And so it was scary. It was intimidating. But six years into my sentence, I uh, started looking for something to mask the pain and the shame and the guilt uh, that I was experiencing uh, being in prison in my own personal life. Just looking at pornography and and I started getting high. I started smoking weed, buying weed in a prison. It was pretty easy to get it in through visitation, through visiting room, families, friends. And then it went from, you know, marijuana to hash to uh, meth and to a needle, shooting cocaine even while I was in a prison. So for the next few years, uh, that's what I did uh, with friends. And I kept it real quiet. I had, had a kind of a quiet chameleon type lifestyle. I knew how to go to work. I worked all the time, every day. I always had a job. Went to school, went to programs, sports. I excelled in sports in the prison system. Uh, they have a lot of activities that keep you busy, keep you out of the, the hair of the officers, keep you busy. And, and I um, never got caught, never never got busted. And so I, one day I was uh, invited. So this is about nine and a half years into my sentence. I was invited to attend a prison revival. I was at the state prison in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, and for somewhat youthful offenders, I would say. And so it was it was like the most exciting Friday, Saturday, and Sunday event that I could ever think of. And like I said, I grew up in a Catholic church where I guess the liturgy is pretty set. You know, you pretty much know what you're going to do. The songs, the, the preaching, the sitting, the standing, the candles, and all that. So I walk into this 
chapel, the prison chapel, and it's full of men, uh, it's full of inmates, about 100 men from the outside community had come in and they volunteered and they were allowed to walk the prison yard, it's a chapel, they were allowed to come into the kitchen and they were coming to the cell blocks and they would just try to connect with you and witness and just share short testimonies with the guys, including myself. And of course, I heard this one guy kept coming up to me and say, hey, I'm I was an alcoholic and Jesus set me free and I don't drink no more. And he probably told me that Friday a few times I ran into him and then Saturday. And then I was like, why are you telling me? You know, (laughs) I go Friday night to this service and it's exciting, man. It is kind of loud and they're, they're praising people's hands are up in the air. They're clapping, they're hugging. They're telling me that Jesus loves me. God loves me. Got a plan for my life. I just never had anybody tell me that. You mentioned before your stepfather that he was a man of faith. He would be found reading his Bible. He would say, trust in the Lord. But was this not a message that he had ever shared with you before? So even though my stepfather, he he lived the life, he really wasn't verbal as far as the salvation message, but he did set an example for me that years later would, would play a big part in my life. I go Friday night and I hear the gospel. And I, I, I remember the pastor getting up and saying that Jesus died on a cross. He shed his blood according to the scriptures. He was buried according to the scriptures. Three days later, he rose again. And it's all according to the scriptures, all according to the Bible, and that he's coming back. And he said, in him, there's eternal life and real men make commitments. And when I heard that last part, I said, you know, I was very convicted because I never made a commitment uh, before I've heard the gospel, I had friends write me letters, of course, send me Bible tracts over the years of being in prison, incarcerated. And I didn't. I left that night without making a commitment. I went back Saturday. Of course, I brought some of my friends with me because I said, this is exciting, man. They're like, you sure, Gene? Are you sure? I said, man, you got to come over with me. So we go over all now we're all convicted. You know, we're all sitting there like fish out of water. And I heard the gospel again. The same thing. Jesus died on the cross, shed his blood, was buried. He rose again according to the scriptures, and he's come back. And that those words, and real men make commitments. Jesus made a commitment to you. You make a commitment to him. And I didn't. But that night, at the end of the church service, there was about a 15-minute period of just fellowship. It was, it was mingling around, people talking. And it seemed like everybody who caught eyes with me. I'm looking, I'm like, looking. I'm just kind of fascinated at this whole church service. And, and in my heart, I really wanted to be a Christian. It was something good that I knew about the Christians I knew, even in a prison. But I, I said, man, I want to be a Christian. Okay. When I get out, my thought, okay, when I'm, when I get out, I'm going to join church and be a Christian. Every time I would catch eyes with somebody, they would walk over to me and they say, hi, are you, a, are you a believer? Are you a Christian? I'm like, no. They said, have you made a commitment tonight? And this happened quite often. Have you made a commitment? I said, no. So I was kind of getting good at like bouncing my eyes. If I saw you looking at me and we caught eyes, I would look away real quick. So convicted, right? And next thing you know, I hear someone behind me and I turn around and the guy says, how you doing tonight? I said, good. He said, have you made a commitment? And I thought, man, they're sneaking up on me, you know? And and uh, I said, no. And I we just engaged in a real short conversation. I, I remember asking him, I, I said, you're a Christian? He says, yes. I said, like, I don't even know why I asked it, but I said, how long have you known Jesus? And he said, since I was four years old. 
I said, you've known Jesus since four. He said, yeah, I accepted Christ as my savior. And at five, while I was praying one night, I heard God call me to be a missionary. And I was like, oh man, you know, this guy's five years old. He has a plan. I, I'm 27, going on 27, 26, almost 10 years in the prison system, a life sentence, thinking I had like the cat by the tail because we were getting high, hustling, selling drugs, meth, cocaine. It was just Thought I had the cat by the tail, but I was like living in such darkness and uh, I wasn't going anywhere. So ignorant of everything that I was doing to the, to the extent of consequences. He gave me his card and he left. I left and no more contact. Next morning, I go back and I hear the gospel. And now when I heard the gospel, I thought, here's the question. I believe that Jesus did it. I believe that he did what the Bible says, that he died for the sins of the world. But did he do it for me? Am I, would, would he done it for me if I was the only human being on earth? And I couldn't say no. And it just convicted me. My stomach churned, my hands sweat. And with some encouragement for some of the guys there, you know, they said, hey, you look like you want to accept the Lord. And I remember I couldn't even speak. I couldn't even like, shake. I was like, rocking you know i was like rocking in a pew and 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 i just got up and i went on front and got on our knees and prayed a sinner prayer and it was basically just jesus i believe that you died and rose again i believe you're the lord Uh, forgive me for my sins father and i want to accept your son jesus christ as my lord and savior a simple prayer like that probably took 30 seconds and i remember like chains broke off me i just remember this weight this it felt like a physical weight come off my back and my heart. I stood up and something was definitely different in my heart and in my mind. I just felt this peace like never before. And I remember they say, you have a Bible, go back, read your Bible. So I go back to my cell and I'm reading my Bible all day. So I, I got saved around 1030 in the morning on Sunday by, you know, lunchtime. I didn't go to lunch. I kept reading supper. I kept reading. I didn't go to supper. My friends were coming. Uh, they were like, hey, you want to get high? I'm like, no, I don't want to get high. They're like, what? You don't get high? I said, no, I don't want to get high. I said, I'm a born again Christian. I got saved, and they, you know, they questioned me, and I said, look, I don't, I don't know a whole lot. I said, I just got saved today. Uh, I can tell you more once I read. <laughs> but I knew two things. It was real clear for me. I knew two things that were so evident was that God loved me unconditionally, no matter because what He did for me. If if He thought I was worth His life, that made me valuable, but it also proved that I was forgiven, that he did that for me and that he forgave me. So he loved me and he forgave me. And I remember just like weeping and crying all day long over this mercy that he showed me and how I felt. You know, I know we walk by faith, but I really felt a tangible difference. And my friends would say, hey, your face looks different. You look different. Something happened to you. I can see it. There's a glow about you. So you've made this commitment. You've given your life to Jesus Christ, and people can see that there's a change in you. But we've got to remember, you're still stuck in prison. Where do you go to when you're stuck in a place like that to actually go further in your faith, to to be discipled? So I uh, connected with the pastor who gave me his card, and we connected. I shared my testimony with him, and he said, put me on your visiting list. I'm coming to see you. So whatever he taught his church on Sunday, he would come in on Monday for about an hour and a half, and he would just share with me testimonies and stories and uh, biblical principles about being a man and missions and stuff about marriage and relationships and money, tithing and uh, repentance. 
living for the Lord, discipleship. And basically what we were doing, it was like discipleship 101. And whatever I learned, I would go back. I would like memorize the verses. Once I memorized them, uh, it may take a day or two. I felt like God did something and it, it like clicked in my life. And then I was able to share it with other guys around me. So I was being discipled. I was discipling men. And then uh, there was a ministry being birthed through, you know, the Holy Spirit and uh, through me, you know, and I had a spirit of reconciliation on me, telling people that, you know, God was in Christ, reconciling the world. I saw guys get saved. I saw guys get healed. I saw guys get just redeemed. I saw families restored. And I saw innocent people being released. It was just things that were brought about by prayer. So I learned that nothing happens on the earth without prayer. And so we prayed, we got together, we prayed one-on-one, two, three, five, 20 guys would gather in the prison yard and we just pray. And it was just something that was becoming natural for us is that we, we would pray. Growing up, when it was good times at the family, we drank. And when it was bad times, we, we drank. But in the prison system, with good times, we'd praise and pray. And then with bad times, we'd praise and pray. You know, so that was, uh, that was our go-to. The Lord was our, really our go-to. And we read in scriptures about setting the captives free. Now, you're still at this stage, you're still a captive, you're still locked behind bars, but it sounds like there was this incredible freedom that you suddenly experienced. You find out once you start reading the Bible, some of your favorite go-to characters, Paul or Peter, mine was Joseph. And uh, once I got a hold of the story of Joseph, I read it over and over and over. And one of the things that stood out in that whole story was Joseph was free to have faith. He wasn't free to choose his circumstances, but he was free uh, to have faith. And that came by the power of the Lord. And so I thought, man, I, I can't control my circumstances. I definitely can't control other people and what they say and do, but I can control my faith and, and my trust in the Lord. And so reading the Bible was essential for me. Praying every morning was essential. I try not to do anything before I prayed, whether it was a five minute prayer or it was like, Lord, I want to do your will more than I want to do my will. And I want to be like Jesus, conforming into his image. It took time and it took experiences. It took failures. It took blunders through repentance. And I'm sorry to guys, you know, And but the freedom that I experienced, I was in prison, but I was free. I think that's what I was trying to share with other men. Hey, yeah, we're we're in prison, but we are free in Christ. So all those habits that you had picked up of looking at pornography, of using drugs, mm-hmm. how easy was it for you to shake those? Because we hear of some people who there's something instant that breaks in them and there's others yeah. where it's a process. What was it like for you? The pornography is honestly, that's, uh, I'm speaking for myself, that was a tough, it initially, I lost the desire. I remember going back to my cell and looking up on, as I read my Bible that that day, I'm looking at the walls and I had centerfold, Playboy and penthouse. I had pictures on my wall and I'm reading about them, I'm looking up. So I began to take them down and throw them away, rip them up, throw them down, flush them down the toilet. I had some books. I put them in the trash. I just wanted to be clean and full of light, I guess. I didn't want anything hidden. I And I just how I felt. Like I didn't want anybody to come into my, walk into my life or walk into my cell and think I had to hide something, you know, like, uh, don't look up on the wall. There's, there's a picture of a naked girl that initially was easy. And then there's, you know, there's, there's been a struggle 
throughout my early years of, you know, want, I'm like, God, I, I know it's wrong. I want to, but, you know, change me, crucify me. You know, you start quoting all the scriptures, you read all the books. And I think for me, it's been a process, you know, cursing, swearing. I, that just, it was gone. It never, I never had to learn not to use profanity. I learned how to forgive people. I learned how to ask forgiveness. It, it set me free from anger. Tell me about your release, because you've already mentioned that you've been sent to prison for life, mm-hmm. never to be paroled, and yet there's this slim chance of a release. <clears throat> what happened down that path? It was my fifth attempt, and I had about 30 years in. I got denied 11, 12, 17 years. I got denied 24, and there was no rhyme or reason why wait. It just it takes time to get your letters, your recommendations, and get support, accomplish things in a prison programs. And so I just filed around those times. They're like kind of the signposts looking back. And every time I got denied, I would literally go back to my cell and praise and worship God saying, God, thank you for denying me because I, that scripture says, uh, and, you know, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. And in all things, give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus and Thessalonians, right? Chapter five. So I literally practiced that. And I realized the more I gave thanks for the situation, God drew near. And so my fifth attempt, uh, I had I had support everywhere. I had friends. I had district attorney who prosecuted my case would support me. Uh, like I said, uh, jobs and home plans. And I had the institution support and the, the governor, the board of pardons denied me. And I remember thanking everybody and, and just saying, can there's anything else I should do? They said, no, go back, continue a good record, and we'll see you in two years. So as I go, went back to my cell, I felt really, I really felt the Holy Spirit say, I want you to get on your knees and thank me. So I go back to my cell, and I, obviously I write a, a more detail about it in my book, Unshackled, but I go back and, and I get on my knees and I start saying thank you. Of course, I got the pillow to my face. I'm crying like a baby, snot and tears. And because I'm thinking I'm going to die in this place, you know, and and next thing you know, uh, it got real quiet. I mean, it got real quiet. And I thought, you know, I learned that, you know, always it doesn't God's not going to get mad. He doesn't have inferior complex in, you, in you know, the way you talk to him. But he does want his last. He, he wants the last word. So I got real quiet. And then next thing you know, I said, uh, uh, I hear this. I, I heard this in my heart, just the phrase, I'm going to release you, but not based on your effort, who you know, or what you accomplished. Now I'm like full of peace now, tears and everything dries up. I remember standing up in my cell and I said, okay, God, what do I do now? He said, go back to work, go back to ministry, go back to serving. And I do. Two months later, I get a letter in the mail from an attorney talking about a new Supreme Court ruling, Graham versus Florida. It was a case uh, that the Supreme Highest Court in land uh, made a comment in the, in the case, said juveniles who did not kill, who did not intend to kill, and did not know should not be subject to life without parole. That fit my case. So it opened the door for many, nearly 500 in Pennsylvania juvenile sentenced lifers out of 5,000 men in serving life without parole in Pennsylvania, 500 were juveniles. And so it opened the door. So everybody began flooding the courts with their case and, hey, there's a new law, there's a new opportunity. They all got denied. My case was granted. My hometown judge said, I want to hear your case. Well, it took 20 months. Um, I got back into court. I got an attorney. He's reviewing my case. He tells me that my attorney, my original attorney, 
had lied to me. He pled me into an illegal plea agreement, and I had an unconstitutional sentence. Of course, you have to get a DA to agree on that, and you have to have a judge agree. And so the first the DA agreed and uh, responded very kindly. And then the judge vacated my life sentence about a month and a half before my release. And so I was still in prison. My status had changed. I was no longer a lifer. I remember going back to court on April 3rd, uh, 2012. I walked into the courtroom shackled and chained, orange jumpsuit. And I have a courtroom full of friends and family. And they're very supportive. And I remember they went through a small little hearing. The DA talked, the judge talked, the, uh, my attorney talked. And then they asked me, do you have anything to say? And I stood up and I said, I am so sorry for the murder of Miss Nagy. I'm sorry for my participating in a crime. My cousin had no right to take a life. And I had, I had no right to be there. I had no right to participate in a robbery. And I, you know, I had no, I had no right to dishonor my folks and, and disobey them and, and leave the house. And I thanked everybody, you know, everybody who's ever supported me over the years, even to the corrections officers and the prison officials who really oftentimes were a blessing and help to me. And then the judge said, okay, I heard enough. And he said, having served 34 years, nine months and 15 days. Now I'm like, my heart's pounding, uh, my chest. Um, I'm, I'm hearing these words, these numbers. And I'm thinking, well, how much time is that? I wasn't sure I was going to be released, but I knew something good was going to happen. I'm pretty much confident that I was going to leave that day no longer a life sentence. But they could have gave me 40 years. I am listening. And then once he said, and having the defendant, Gene McGuire, having served 34 years, nine months and 15 days, he is released effective this date. And I heard that. I just bawled my eyes out and the, the, the courtroom went nuts, clapping and shouting, Hallelujah. And at one point, it got real quiet, and I hear someone yell, unshackle him, release him from his chains. He's a free man. And so the sheriffs come over. They're unshackling me. My sister's climbing over a bench to get to me, and the sheriff's saying, hold on, Mary. She goes, no, I waited 35 years for my brother, and she's hugging me, and we're crying. And it was just this joyful experience of just, oh, my goodness. And so they take the chains off me, the shackles, and I had a chain around my waist and handcuffs the sheriffs come over to me and they hand me a bag of clothes that um, one of my family members brought me some clothes. Um, they said, Gene, go change, Mary, take your brother home. And it was like, oh, those words, I still hear them, you know? And, and I'm like, I was just serving life, sitting in a prison cell. And now they're saying, Mary, take your brother home. And of course, she, she lived a couple miles from where I grew up. So that I was going to my hometown again. I want to say that it was incredible to have my sister's support and the family, uh, my nephew and niece, and so many friends that were there. I had built a uh, relationship with so many people, and even my attorney commented how many people were in support uh, of me and through officials and through friends and high school friends. I was released and spent time with my sister and family in Pennsylvania, and then I relocated three weeks later. And to here in Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas, where I, I joined a ministry and and just started uh, my career, I guess <laughs> you call it my career late at life. But if I just serve people, God will promote me along the way. So what does your career look like today? What 
are you doing these days? Today, I, I serve as a chaplain pastor for a Christian-owned family company, family-owned restaurant, and we have some 17 employees in 14 locations. I get to go into the restaurant each day, and I get to serve and witness and minister to our staff. So I get to take the gospel to them. Now, I mentioned your book, Unshackled, and you've explained the story behind that, but it's not your only book. You've also released Life After Unshackled, which tells a bit more of the story. Tell me what drove you to to write that book. Uh, well, I had a, uh, a, a writer helping me, a collaborator writer, uh, Darren Shaw. And after the book came out, about four years or so, he we would still connect and talk on the phone. He said, he said when are you going to write your second book? I'm like, I'm not, man. I was like, that was enough, you know. But um, I just felt like as he would ask me uh, periodically over the months, that I just started thinking, and I'm thinking this 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 was on my my mind. Um, two things: one is that um, when I laid my life down in the prison, God used me, and the stories in Unshackled really have come around because of the goodness of God. But a life laid down opens doors, and so I realized that as I laid my life down to serve the Lord, all these doors and people and events and you know, I got to go to Israel, I got to go to Mexico, I've got to be on 700 Club and Daystar and all these uh, podcasts and, you know, the Rodney Olson, uh, uh, you know, Bleeding Daylight. All, all these have occurred, I believe, because I'm in the will of God and God connects us. And so my second book is really about that. And it was an overriding word as I worked with my, my good friend, Richard we would meet periodically. We're trying to find a title of the book and trying to kind of figure out, you know, as we wrap up this book, it was written and we had a manuscript. One of the words that, that was popping off the story was this word life. We're sitting here one day at lunch and we're talking about, hey, a, a judge, 1977, a judge gave me life without parole. And the comment was, I don't think the judge understood the significance of that word life and the duration behind it. As far as what I'm going to tell you now, then 10 years later, God granted me eternal life through accepting Jesus Christ and what Jesus done for me. So I had eternal life. And then some 25 years later, a new judge from my hometown gave me a new lease on life by giving me time served, releasing me without any obligations to the courts, any obligation of what happened. So he gave me a new life in a sense. So at that point, Richard says, I think we have the title of your new book. And he said, it's called Life After Unshackled. But it's a, it's a book that details uh, some of the incredible uh, blessings and opportunities that God has given me over the last nine years of my release. Gene, I'm wondering if people are wanting to get hold of either of your books or to, to get in contact with you. What's the easiest way to, to be in touch? My website would be genemcguire.org, O-R-G. Both books are available. And I'll put links to that in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net so that people can find that easily. Oh, fantastic, yeah. Gene, yeah. it's been wonderful to talk to you, to hear your story, which started out in such a difficult way, mm -hmm. but we can see that God has had his hand on your life, 
and has made changes and will continue to help you make changes in in other people's lives. Mm. And so we want to thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your story with us on Bleeding Daylight. You're welcome, Rodney. I feel like I met a friend for life. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.